0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello, I hope you're keeping cool out there today across South Australia and the far west of New South Wales. I'm Cassie Huff, it's great to have your company. This hot weather might have knocked them around a bit, but after a big harvest, there are sure to be some mice around. Soon, I'll tell you how farmers convince scientists to change the mice baiting doses. And from shepherds to helicopters, there's been an evolution of mustering techniques over millennia really, and it seems drones might be the latest and they come with some nifty little tricks.
3: You can put a speaker on it and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing woo Bullock woo, so that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. The way I see it, it's just another form of pressure.
2: I'll get into how Sky Kelpie is being developed at the uh, Evoke Ag conference that's been on for the last couple of days. They were one of the speakers. Now, we'll get into a spray drift, though, first up, because it's a big issue that's still affecting South Australian growers. But instead of penalising people when an accident does happen, uh, Grain Producers SA and Crop Life Australia have launched a new initiative for farmers to take the Responsible Spray Applicator Pledge. Now, to explain what this pledge entails, Grain Producers SA Chief Executive Officer Brad Penn, Mary Jones, me good afternoon. Hi Cassie. So, what is the Responsible Spray Applicator Pledge?
4: So, look, we're uh, we're taking a different angle on uh, on spray drift and, and incursions, um, and we are really looking at uh, a behavioural change campaign that we've launched today um, to take the spray pledge. Uh, it's more focused on really rewarding the grain producers that are, that are doing the right thing. So what we're urging our South Australian grain producers to do is go on to Spray Pledge um, website. Uh, they'll be able to answer some questions there. So it's a bit of an education campaign. Take the pledge um, and then we send them a whole heap of uh, a, a Spray Pledge pack um, that's associated with that. It's got a core flute um, and they also get a $100 uh, voucher through uh, our partners in this crop life. So, we're really trying to think outside the square. Um, we know it's an issue uh, and we, we want to tackle this head on.
2: So you're going for more of a carrot approach than a, a stick when it comes to addressing this issue. Just how big an issue is it?
4: Yeah, look, it it's an ongoing issue for um, for the grain industry, particularly um, where there's coexistence with um, with horticulture. As, as we know, um, the vast majority of grain producers do do the right thing. Um, but we need to continue to have um, access to these chemicals for for grain producers. So what we're doing is putting something proactive in place. Um, This initiative we're hoping will have um, really good uptake and start to spread the message and have a year-long conversation about why we need to continue um, spraying uh, responsibly.
2: So beyond a core flute and uh, a bit of an incentive program there, why would someone want to do this?
4: So, really, it's about um, being responsible as a, as a grain producer. And, and as I said, a vast majority are. Um, but it's about uh, the neighbour-to-neighbour conversations and, and really creating a, a, a year-long discussion um, and the importance of, of spray application because we need to continue to keep access and, and we want to stop any spray drift incidents. We, we really need to keep access to these chemicals It's uh, the agrochemicals are critical to um, our businesses as as grain industry.
2: And with the pledge that people make, they answer some questions. Is that just to test their knowledge or is there actually education resources available as part of this as well?
4: No, certainly an education resources. So it's not a pass or fail. Um, we want grain producers at the end to take the pledge to say that they will be responsible applicators. They're making a, a public statement to say that they're going to spray responsibly. Through the questions in the lead up, though, it really is about touching on um, some of those key sections of spray um, and, and that application. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a pass or a fail, but um, if you get the question wrong, it does provide you with a little video or some other resources to look into so you can upskill yourself as a grain producer when you go through this process.
2: I know it's been launched today, but has there been much interest?
4: Oh, definitely. So uh, we've only just launched it today, but uh, yeah. We've got uh, grower directors uh, as part of GPSA on the board. They've already started this, to spread the message around. So um, we're really hoping and we're urging South Australian grain producers to get on board this campaign uh, and really show and lead the way in responsible spray application.
2: Do you have a target number or proportion of growers?
4: We don't have a target number. Obviously, we'd like to get uh, a majority of, of the industry on board. Um, that, that would be the target. Um, but, you look, the more we know with these behavioural-type um, campaigns, the more growers we get on board, the more effective it is. So we are really going to be pushing this out there. And I, and I should say that this is just the first part of um, activities and issues we're undertaking in the area of spray drift for, for grain producers. Um, we're going to follow this with uh, other tools as well that will um, that, be announced uh, later in the year.
2: And you've also got your Keep Your Droplets to Yourself campaign as well at the moment. How are they working we together? Have-
4: Yes, actually, that's been, um, it's been a really effective uh, tool to use as well because that gives you facts and some information on, on how you should apply the chemical. Um, but we've also had some of the manufacturers of the machinery retailers um, have actually reached out and, and they're using those points too in some of the materials. So I think it's important that we have a, a whole supply chain approach to this. Um, we do need the, the chemical retailers on board and that's why um, we do have Crop Life Australia partnering partnering with us on this and also the machinery because we know that there's a lot of technology and a lot of changes in, um, in the way they operate so we, we really need to try and bring everyone on board um, and that's the aim of the campaign.
2: Well I hope it goes well because it certainly is an issue that many people would like to see addressed. No one likes to see a crop inadvertently destroyed by wayward spray so thanks for your time today. Thanks Cassie. GPSA CEO Brad Perry there. And if you'd like to know more, go to spraypledge.com. Au. Staying in the paddock, uh, the desperate scramble to get approval for double-strength zinc-phosphide mouth mouse spray two years ago only happened after farmers pushed back against researchers who believed the regular strength bait wasn't enough to provide a lethal dose with a single grain. When researchers revisited the bait strength study that had been relied on since the 1980s, they discovered farmers were right in saying that the bait they were applying wasn't lethal. Steve Henry, research officer with the CSIRO, says it's a good lesson in the importance of scientists listening to farmers.
5: Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting one because the scientists were always very keen to impart knowledge, but over a period of time, farmers were telling us repeatedly that they weren't seeing the results that they expected from their zinc-phosphide baiting efforts. And so after you know, hearing this a number of times, we actually started to investigate this in the lab and went through a series of projects that led to this discovery that mice were less sensitive to zinc phosphide than we thought.
6: Okay, so before that point, before you did the extra work, you were relying on the sort of conventional wisdom, I think, from, from a study back in the 1980s?
5: Yeah, so the, the work that was done around the sensitivity of mice to zinc phosphide was done in the USA in the 1980s and when zinc phosphide first came into the country it came in under I guess under an emergency permit but I'm not 100% sure of that but it was used in conventional tillage systems and the results that they got were quite good because we think mice could scurry around and find multiple grains and, and get a lethal dose quite quickly.
6: Which contrasts to real world settings in the paddock?
5: So now in in real world settings in the paddock where we have conservation tillage, where there's lots of food, lots of shelter, uh, zero disturbance, it's actually quite difficult for mice to find multiple baits. And so it's really critical that every grain of zinc phosphide is a lethal dose. What happens if it's not a lethal dose? So, From the initial study that we did in the lab, we discovered that if mice got a sub-lethal dose, they stopped taking the bait straight away. The duration of that aversion, we don't understand yet. We don't understand how long they stopped taking the bait for. But certainly in our our studies that ran over three or four days, they didn't take bait again after they took that first sublethal dose.
6: So you've only got one chance?
5: Yeah. and, And particularly in a scenario like this season where there's lots and lots of other food in farming systems so in some cases up to a tonne to the hectare of grain left on the ground and that's 2,200 grains per square metre if you're spreading bait at three grains per square metre the chance of a mouse finding that lethal dose uh, or the probability of a mouse finding that lethal dose is quite low. So every bait needs to be lethal.
6: Okay, so you did all of that and then the APVMA approved this emergency permit and then the bait manufacturers started making this double strength bait.
5: Yeah, that's correct. And and that also enabled us to do a, a trial in the field at Parks where we Confirmed that we got really good results. In fact, about 90% of the time using the double-strength bait, which is the bait mixed at 50 grams grams of zinc-phosphide per kilo of wheat bait, that about 90% of the time we get an 80% knockdown. So really effective results from using that double-strength bait.
6: What do you do if you've still got lots of the 25 grams bait in the shed?
5: Yeah, and that's something I hear quite a bit from farmers. You know, they have holdings of 25 grand bait that's been stored really well in dry conditions. And so our... our we're saying to them, don't throw that bait away, but use it under a scenario where you could probably get the best results. And, and that would be really dry conditions where there's almost zero other food around that gives mice the best chance of finding multiple grains of the bait and getting that lethal dose.
6: But if there is plenty of background food, just forget about
5: it yeah hold off until you get that scenario where you give it the best chance with this new
6: double strength bait have you changed your advice on baiting regimes can you get away with baiting less
5: Yeah, look, we think that... Well, we're thinking that as we get more and more data in about the effectiveness of it, that we won't hear these stories about multiple applications of bait. Uh, And one of the things that we used to recommend when farmers were saying, well, we don't get the results we're expecting is to bait six weeks ahead of sowing if there were lots of mice present, then continue to monitor until you sow the crop and then do another application at the point when you sow the crop if you still had mice. What we're saying now is get that background food down as low as you possibly can and then spread the bait as you sow the crop because that's the time when there's the least other food around gives mice the best chance of discovering those toxic grains.
6: What's your expectation for numbers this season because most areas uh, grew very big crops last year Uh, probably a fair bit of grain may have gone out the back of the header or not made it into the header Uh, should we
5: expect big numbers? Uh, yeah, look, that's one of the things that we're hearing pretty much right across the cropping zone. People from Western Australia are reporting numbers already and there's already some baiting effort going there. Uh, we're hearing about baiting effort already in central New South Wales and, and certainly in, in parts of Western Victoria and South Australia where there were some fantastic crops but but lots of crop losses as well. Um, we're saying to farmers, you know, get vigilant, get out, go for a walk. Big stubbles hide the signs of mouse activity. Go for a walk, look for mouse activity, be prepared to bait.
2: Steve Henry, Research Officer with the CSIRO, speaking with Angus Verley. It's 17 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Mustering livestock with drones is a cheaper, safer and more productive option, according to Luke Chaplin, who is the founder of Skykelpie, an agritech startup aiming to be the first company in the world to commercialise mustering with drones. Although there's still a few kinks to iron out, Luke believes drones will eclipse traditional mustering methods in no time, and he shares how the idea was born.
3: So it was bored in a uni lecture uh, in 2017 and my mate and I uh, were just daydreaming about different solutions. Um, drones were, they were definitely had been around for a few years, these consumer drones floating about, but we thought how good would it be to muster with them. So from there um, I was lucky enough to join up with Farmers to Founders, their ideas program. I then got a Nuffield scholarship, um, which really opened the door, you know, PR-wise, to some funding and support. Um, So last year we did uh, quite sophisticated trials in this space with Meat and Livestock Australia and Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, and we're really excited. So we've validated our assumptions, it works. Um, So now what our job is to build um, a range of products and services to enable livestock operators to fly the drones themselves.
7: And when it comes to them being able to fly these drones, what sort of licences and regulations are barriers for that to be able to happen?
3: So at the moment, um, under the regulations, there is the landholder rule, um, and it's quite cool. So it permits livestock mustering if you are under 400 feet. Um, it's your own drone on your own property, but you have to keep it within visual line of sight. So what we're proposing to um, the regulator this year is just for some more streamlined and practical Uh, you know, regulations um, around this. It's very complex, time-consuming and expensive. You'll need a consultant at the moment to be able to get beyond visual line-of-sight permissions for your property. Um, So we're really hoping to break down that barrier and I think it'll really open up to the possibility of adopting this solution industry-wide.
7: How does a drone compare to traditional dogs, horses, helicopters, motorbikes... What are the benefits to having a drone?
3: Well, Demetria, you can put a speaker on it and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing Woo, Bullock, Woo. So that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. Um... The way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So, just like a, a dog, a motorbike, someone on a horse, or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. So, it's all about how you apply that pressure and when you release it uh, to keep your animals in a light, responsive manner and keep them in a good frame of mind as well, because that's what uh, you know we really want to promote is sort of that animal welfare aspect, because that just has a range of uh, you know productivity benefits. Um, if the animals are in a good state of mind.
7: And how are the cows responding to the drones and what other benefits can you see the drone having on the land?
3: With infrared cameras and, you know, the great zooms on them and we can start to harness some AI for detecting the animals as well, I think that will really allow for clean paddock musters And if we can make sure that all animals are accounted for, I think that's going to have benefits for fertility, you know, pasture management, supplement management and also pest detection as well. Um, With our trials last year, we were able to find quite a lot of wild dogs on sheep properties and really interesting, you know, finding them at night time with thermal imaging. um, It was really effective.
7: You're heading overseas to do some more research in this space. What are you hoping to discover?
3: So I'm heading to Asia next month as part of my um, Nuffield travels, um, and I'll be meeting with some, you know, large drone manufacturers over there. Basically, just to get them excited about, you know, this is a huge use case um, for their technology. Possibly, I can convince them to, you know, focus a bit of their R and D towards this solution, and you know, yeah, and possibly spark up some, you know, partnerships for distribution. So that'll be next month. Um, I'll heading, be heading to America as well, Israel. Um, so basically uh, to explore all the you know great technology that's happening overseas and what other countries are doing with their regulations as well. Uh, having said that, Australia is probably best place to be pioneers in this progressive regulation space. Because of our low air risk and ground risk in rural Australia, um, it, it really lends itself to progressing these regulations to be able to fly Fly these drones out of line of sight. I'm with CASA on keeping the sky safe and they've done a great job in keeping the aviation community safe for a long time. Um, I think we can do it in a practical and safe manner that really unlocks the full potential of this solution.
2: Luke Chaplin's founder of SkyCalP speaking with Dimitri Panagiataris at the AgriFutures Evoke Conference in Adelaide this week. Now, finally, before we get to weather, a venereal disease that causes infertility in cattle and costs the industry hundreds of millions of dollars could soon be a thing of the past. University of Queensland researchers are in the final stages of testing a new experimental vaccine. Megan Hughes has the story.
0: Livestock disease has been front and centre recently with foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin disease and Japanese encephalitis all making headlines. But work is underway to prevent a serious but lesser-known disease. Professor Ala Tabor from the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at UQ says this venereal disease is quite prevalent. It's
8: been shown that one in ten bulls that present at the abattoirs across northern Australia are infected with Tritrichomonas fetus, which causes bovine trichomosis. So we previously hadn't had an Australian
0: vaccine uh, for this particular disease. Bulls pass this disease onto cows during mating, and it can cause infertility and early abortion. Professor Tabor is working on developing this new vaccine. She explains what the team's done.
8: We first obtained some positive samples from a bunch of bulls that were being culled. And from that, we made a culture collection. So we had to clean them up because obviously growing samples from the bull's penis, it's not a pure environment. So we have to purify and make the pure culture of trichomonas fetus that we could use in the vaccine because the vaccine has to be clean, right? And we inactivated it by heating, which is um, fairly... A mild way of inactivating, you can use chemicals and things like that, but we just used heating. Yep, and to make sure, we make sure they were not alive anymore before we formulated them in the vaccine.
0: The industry is welcoming news of a vaccine for this disease. It's mostly prevalent in Northern Australia, in WA, the NT and in the Gulf Country in Queensland, but it has been found in southern regions as cattle are being bought and transported down for breeding. Ag4 Southern Inland Regional Director Bim Struss says this work could be a game-changer.
9: What it will do, particularly in uh, that northern region, it will be increased productivity. Provided it's it's cost-effective, productivity is the basis of what we're trying to do, Megan. If, If our industry doesn't produce the numbers of cattle that we need to produce, we lose, uh, we lose dollars, so it is very, very important.
0: He says at the moment there's little options for the producers whose cattle test positive.
9: Now, the only management practices uh, is to test bulls, who are the main carriers, and cull anything that's positive, and it's very, very important. The other way they do a bit of management on this, and it's more difficult, as you can imagine, in the Northern Territory or in Northern Australia, so where possible they give cows sexual rest or better commonly termed as seasonally mate so take the bulls out and most cows i'm told by my vets will will clear the disease themselves it's an internal thing that they'll actually they can clear it if they're getting some sexual rest but bulls uh, young bulls likewise if you uh, if you can keep them out of the cows for a period of time they too will clear the disease but older bulls are less likely and, uh, and are they'll, they'll be carriers for life and they needed to be tested and certainly culled.
0: The early trials of this vaccine have been successful on a small test group of bulls at UQ's research farm. Further testing is being done before the vaccine can be officially registered and sold commercially.
2: Megan Hughes reporting and there's more online at abc.net.au. To weather now, aware Simon Timke, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, can give you an update on just how hot it is. I'm guessing it's over 40 in some parts of the state already.
1: G'day Cassie. Yeah, certainly. I was just having a look at some of the temperatures. Widespread areas over the west of the state uh, already in excess of forty degrees. Nullarbor, Takula, Ceduna, Woodna, all uh, all hotter, and getting pretty close in uh, um, plenty of other spots as well. So very hot conditions. We're seeing a little bit of uh, uh, freshening of the northerly wind out to the uh, to the west as well. So pretty hot. Well, very hot. Uh, pretty dry and pretty windy as well. So Uh, Obviously that uh, increases the fire dangers today and uh, there is a fire weather warning out uh, and uh, the CFS has issued total fire bans for a a number of districts today, but particularly the West Coast, Eastern Air Peninsula, Lower Air Peninsula, the Mount Lofty Ranges and Upper South East districts for today. Uh, and a more extensive area for for tomorrow, as those northerly winds tomorrow freshen ahead of the change, expected to move across most of the west and south on uh, on Friday, uh, if you can imagine a line roughly from the southernmost tip of uh, your uh, air peninsula back to the northwest corner, I think that's roughly where we'll see that change uh, late Friday morning gradually extending uh, eastwards across the remainder of the south and also the Northwest pastoral during Friday. so just the, the really hot air left over the northeast of the state by uh, late Friday evening. Uh, today the weather should be pretty much dry. Uh, just very hot, uh, as well as that fire weather warning. We do have a severe to extreme heat wave warning out for uh, numerous districts. Chance there could be a thunderstorm over the southwest of the state, sort of west of about Sejuna uh, later on today too. And as that change moves across tomorrow, uh, a, a chance that there could be uh, some showers and some thunderstorms, possibly with gusty winds, uh, as that change moves across over the, the west and south of the state. Following that, the, the change moves up over the northeast on Saturday uh, and then we fall under the influence of a high-pressure ridge to the south which will dominate our weather for uh, the following few days, Sunday through to Thursday, keeping conditions mostly dry and certainly much milder than we're experiencing today and tomorrow. Uh, rainfall totals with that change tomorrow, uh, nothing too big, mostly less than 5 millimetres, but the odd heavier shower or thunderstorm could produce some totals a little bit higher, maybe in that 5 to 20 millimetre range, Cassie.
2: Thanks for that, Simon. I'm sure a lot of people will be looking for the reprieve come Friday night when the change comes across because it's certainly very hot across the state. So thanks for your time today. And there are those total fire bans in the eastern Air Peninsula and Mount Lofty regions as well. In the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western will be sunny tomorrow, temperatures getting down to 17 to 24, but during the day reaching the mid to high 30s. The Lower Western also sunny, down to 14 to 22, but during the day it's getting up to 34 to 39 degrees. More to come. On the Country Hour, we've got news and more stories. Up next, is coming up to 12.30.
1: You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill,
10: this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: Hello, if you just joined me. It's great to have your company. I am Cassie Huff. The state government is a step closer to delivering on its pre election promise for a review into duck hunting.
11: Is the shooting of native birds for recreation acceptable to the
2: community? That is one of the questions that uh, will be posed to people. I'll have a bit of a look in the next half hour at uh, some of the arguments being made around that issue. And you'll meet another of the finalists in the South Australian Rural Women's Award, a woman who has married her love of fashion with her... uh, Families love of merino sheep so more on that soon but first we'll find out what's making news with matt Coleman. good afternoon
10: hello cassie in the news this afternoon the prime minister says the families of two adelaide men who died in a light plane crash in the philippines are being given consular assistance simon chipperfield and Carti santhanam were among four people missing from a plane which was heading from bicol to Manila on saturday rescuers arrived overnight but the two men and the two filipino pilots were not able to be saved Police say a fire that engulfed two unused concrete tanks containing old tyres on the air highway is suspicious. Officers and firefighters were first called to the tank's rest area at Lincoln Gap about half past one overnight. The fire has now been contained but traffic delays are expected to continue on the highway for most of the day. And the state and federal governments are working together to fast track the delivery of 26 acute inpatient beds to the Flinders Medical Centre. The beds are expected to open within the next few weeks while a firm the 16 will go online early next year four years ahead of schedule 136 beds in total will be delivered as part of a 400 million dollar upgrade due in 2028 more news at one o'clock
2: thank you for that matt pastoralists near wyala are raising concerns about a potential uranium mine in the region alligator energy is planning a trial of one of the sites of a uranium deposit by adding sulfuric acid to the groundwater supplies and then pumping it back to the surface to extract uranium. While the company says there's no risk of the acid polluting the environment, nearby pastoralists still fear the long-term impacts and what they could be, as Lucas Forbes reports.
12: It's a lovely view. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It is pretty cool. I don't know if I've ever been to a pastoral east. was right on, the, right on the ocean like this one. Mulloquana Station, just uh, south right. of Waala, is one of the few outback stations that abuts the sea. Pastoralist Tom Joyce takes me to the hill behind his house, where you can see across the saltbush and flat plains to the roughly 20 kilometres of untouched beaches. However, Mr Joyce says he's worried about the impact of a potential uranium
13: mine on the health and beauty of his property. Just the first initial concerns are just what that looks like environmentally for us as landowners as as residents that are going to be living nearby and just what that looks like environmentally for our region and ultimately for the Spencer Gulf
12: now the site that's being trialed isn't on your property so I suppose some people might say what,
13: what's your concern in that case we're the closest residents to the trial site which we're overlooking at the moment from the above the house here and it's right on our boundary it's just a stone's throw from our boundary there's also other proposed trial sites that are on our place and the next door neighbors as well
12: yeah pastoralist tom joyce speaking one of mr joyce's neighbors pastoralist eric ashby also says he's worried about any potential impacts to the water table or to the spencer gulf
6: you know it's how you phrase stuff up you know a small amount of solution you know if people realized which was a shock to me the more i've looked into it and going to their other meetings in town i was a little bit surprised that you know it's 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 huge amounts of sulfuric acid you know that's significant and i think anyone who isn't concerned about pumping sulfuric acid into a water table especially this close to the uh, spencer Gulf, sounds to me a little bit bit crazy us, eric ashby speaking
12: Alligator Energy is planning to do a trial on a station near Wyala to see if a full mine would be feasible. CEO Greg Hall says there was no risk of pollution to the water table or to the Spencer
14: Gulf. It involves circulating the existing groundwater. So we, where we are, 60 or 80 minutes down, has a hypersaline aquifer. Compacted sands with small pore spaces that contain hypersaline water about 34% more saline on seawater, you actually circulate large volumes of that water, large volumes, and I'm talking, you know, thousands of metres cubed circulate, and into that you dose it with acid. You're not circulating pure acid. That's the thing. You're dosing it with acid. And what that does is it reverses the process that formed the uranium in the first place over many millions of years, this water leaches uranium out of the granites, which is the underlying layer there, and into the sands, and it forms, uh, it reacts with the chemicals in the sands, and uranium solidifies. We're dissolving the uranium, like you're dissolving sugar in hot coffee, and then pumping out the solution which contains uranium. So all the acid does is, instead of taking millions of years, it speeds up the process to about 18 months. But it's a small dose of acid in there, and the acid gets used up by the, the dissolving of the uranium and dissolving of other minerals. So that's the important part of the process. It's a, it's a small dose of acid to speed up the process, much, much as you use in many sort of other processes. The other aspect of it is the groundwater, the calcium in the ground, the pyrite in the ground, which, which helped to form the basis of dropping out the uranium, actually also reacts and, and contains any
12: residual acid. But why is there interest in mining this uranium now? Mr. Hall says there's more international demand for uranium due to recent advancements in making safer,
14: modular nuclear reactors, as well as the war in Ukraine. Smaller reactors manufactured in plants and delivered the site and the passive safety are now making a, a real review by many, many countries around the world. Many are reversing their previous phase-out policies to both enhance their nuclear, extend the lives of their current plants and look at nuclear new plants so there is a a major change around the world the last impact on it, just to let you know, is, of course, the war in Ukraine, which has put a lot of issues into supply from Russia of a range of things, is now resulting on Russian supply of nuclear material, which is mainly from down blended nuclear weapons, which is a good thing, but it's being restricted into many of the Western countries. So people are see- seeking uranium supply from other areas, and they really want areas which are well-regulated, understand the business, have been operating in uranium, and have supported governments.
12: However, Mr. Joyce says he wants Mulloquine Station to be part of his family business for generations to come and is still worried about what impacts a uranium mine might have on that.
13: My children, are, they're the seventh generation in our family business. We're not just farming for the next, next little bit. We're, we're setting up for the next seven generations in front of us. And uh, so, you know, it may not be myself in the 20-year lifespan of this mine that has necessary consequences um, as much as there are, but it's the generations to come that will potentially see the effects.
2: Tom Joy sending that story from Lucas Forbes. To duck hunting now and the state government is a step closer to delivering on its pre-election promise of a review into the practice. It's given notice to establish a parliamentary select committee into hunting which will consist of two MPs from the government, two from the opposition and one from the crossbench. The committee will look at issues around animal welfare, sustainability, community attitudes, economic considerations and Aboriginal perspectives. RSPCA animal welfare advocate Dr Rebecca Ayers says there's no way to shoot ducks in a reliably humane way and hopes the terms of reference prioritise animal welfare perspectives. Look, we're
11: really grateful that the government is honouring its pre-election commitment to review recreational duck shooting. It's an issue that causes a lot of distress to many of our supporters. We are just really hoping, though, that the terms of reference for this inquiry prioritise the animal welfare questions. and We think the animal welfare questions here are, does the high wounding rate meet public expectations? Because we know that duck shooting has a very high wounding rate. About one, four of the ducks shot will be injured, not killed. And that means that they are very likely to suffer a slow lingering death. So that that's one question, and then the other question is: Is the shooting of native birds for recreation acceptable to the community? And again, we would think, you know, from the feedback that we received, that it is absolutely not
15: compared with other, um, you know, animals that are hunted recreationally. Is that that sounds like that's a, a, a quite a high injury rate compared with with some other
11: animals. Look, I'm not sure about the statistics of other animals that are hunted. I know, for, for instance, with bows, with bow hunting, that um, that does have a very high wounding rate because, again, you know, you're shooting at a moving animal. I mean, if we imagine animals that are being commercially killed, they're, they're actually restrained and, in most cases, they're also stunned. So when you're talking about hunting, you're talking about shooting at a moving animal and bearing in mind too that this animal is some distance away from you there are usually you know if you're talking about an animal on land there are leaves in your way there are possibly trees in your way if you're talking about duck shooting this bird is at least 30 meters or more away from you a a duck particularly when it falls injured it will try and scurry away from the hunter so they normally go underwater for a little bit and, and then try and hide in the reeds so many of the ducks consequently are left to die a, a slow and lingering death
15: what would you hope to come from this review if you could look at specific outcomes Rebecca I'm, I'm sure banning is is one option that may be high at the list but what are some other specific outcomes that would be a win in in your case
11: well banning is really the only thing I mean this is an activity that cannot be conducted humanely because you cannot reliably, humanely shoot flying ducks with a shotgun. I mean, recreational duck shooting is already outlawed in several other states and Victoria is also currently considering banning it as well.
2: RSPCA animal welfare advocate Dr Rebecca Ayers. Now, how do duck hunters feel about this announcement? Vice President of the Conservation and Hunting Alliance of South Australia, Rob West, says he and the organisation are supporting the review, but he wants the view of recreational duck hunters to be considered by the committee.
16: The review was flagged by the Australian Labor Party pre-election, so we've obviously done some thinking about it and we actually really welcome the review into duck hunting or native bird hunting in in general we do qualify that would like to see the scope just to make sure it's a progressive review but we believe it will be so no fully supporting
15: and what are some of the the concerns or possibilities you hope would be considered in a review rob
16: Oh look, I think we're looking for it as an opportunity for us to showcase some of the value that our hunting community brings people and the state of South Australia in general. We just see the collection of sustainably harvested wild food as very, very important to a broad cross-section of our community, you know, whether that be from ducks, to yabbies, to wichity grub. These are lifestyle activities that are very important to many people and we wish to be able to highlight that.
15: And obviously South Australia is one of the few places where duck hunting is actually continued, both here in Victoria. Does that bring you any concern given that other states and territories can't go out and, and hunt ducks?
16: Oh look, it's a pretty common misconception actually, back at that That it is restricted in most states it's really only western australia and queensland that don't allow an open season on um, game bird hunting they both allow it under pest destruction
15: and just earlier i know you mentioned some of the i guess the sustainable or the food elements of of duck hunting is there a strong correlation between people that will you know hunt for ducks and and actually eat them or, or use them
16: uh extremely strong correlation hunting is not like fishing you can't put what you take back so it's really really important that um you take and utilize what you harvest right and that's been a really strong message and development in the hunting community over time you just don't see people anymore that hunt for sport it's just not what happens
15: to give an indication of, of how many people in south australia would partake can you give a, a rough estimate or some kind of a guide
16: I don't know everybody that, that partakes in it, but, you know, there's generally over a 1,000 permit holders each year that hunt wild duck, but there's a lot of other people that support them.
15: Who would you like to see on that committee or, or voices you would like to have heard on the committee?
16: Look, I think it's an important activity for South Australians to be able to highlight and understand the values that it brings. So we just, we're really looking for a balance of, of people on that community. We're very well aware some people don't love the activity that we do. It's important they have a voice. Like it's important that those that do and that can provide the positive impacts will be really looking to show the cultural and mental health benefits it gives many of our, our members. The, there's a strong sense of purpose and belonging that comes to, the, to us from the hunting activities and the hunting community. That's really important to us.
2: Vice President of Conservation and Hunting Alliance of South Australia, Rob West, speaking with Beck Wetham. We're not getting all the texts through, but I do have a text from Deb Truman saying, ban duck hunting once and for all. It's just plain barbaric. Thanks so much for your text there. You can, you can text me on 0467 or phone 1300 222 I'm not sure they're all getting through at the moment, but we are working on that. But send them through, take a chance and see if uh, it makes it through. It's coming up to a quarter to one. This week on Landline, celebrating diversity among Australia's
11: farmers.
6: I was always given the support and the love from the people around me. I never for once thought that anyone was going to reject me.
11: And the forestry foresight of some landholders in southwest Victoria.
14: But I really like this idea that productive forestry could also be a land care solution.
11: That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView
9: on digital and on mobile. ABC South
10: Australia and Broken Hill.
2: The Brazil case of mad cow disease is still being uh, investigated, but early indications are that it's an atypical case. But Brazil's ag minister has announced that beef exports to China from that country will be temporarily suspended from today. Supposedly, it's an old animal and that can often be naturally occurring and not likely to spread, but it could disrupt trade between Brazil and China or Brazil and the US. And some analysts say the news of this BSE or mad cow disease in Brazil could. Trigger relaxation of China's trade bans on Aussie beef.
17: No, that's right. Not that I've seen. They're still testing to see if this current case is an atypical, like described as an atypical case, or if it's a more conventional uh, you know, infection that's, that's potentially more widespread.
6: And this is an older animal, and have had some atypical cases in the past in Brazil.
17: Yeah, that's right. They have, and, and often that then, when they have a case like that, they usually, as a precaution. The Brazilian government will halt exports as a short-term measure just to make sure that they're demonstrating to their export partners that they're being responsible. Um, and then once it comes back, if it, if it does come back in the past, we've seen like an atypical case, then generally those, um, those export arrangements kind of start back up again. So it can usually only be a, a fairly short-term hiccup if it's an atypical case. An
6: atypical is sort of more naturally occurring, but the other case would spread.
17: That's right. The other case generally is something where there's been a, a more conventional infection process and that can often be like we saw in the UK years ago that it was a feed, uh, spread through feed product uh, and that generally then means there's a high proportion of animals that get it and, and then there's a chance for it to be spreading then as well of course uh, in, those, in those types of outbreaks so that becomes a lot more problematic for your trade, uh, your trade access.
2: That was Beef Industry Analyst Matt Douglas speaking with Michael Condon. We'll keep following that, see what it means for Australian beef exports, particularly to China, where uh, there are still some barriers there for some exporters getting into that uh, country. So uh, this could change things a little. So we'll keep an eye on that. But we'll head to the Riverland now. The South Australian fruit fly problem is taking too long to be brought under control, according to the new National Fruit Fly Council Chair, John Webster. The council's next meeting meeting will be next month and they'll be discussing the Riverland outbreaks and bringing efforts in line with the national strategy. Mr Webster discusses his priorities with Anita Ward as he enters the role.
18: Look, it uh, it is a new role for me and I haven't had the been involved yet with the first meeting of the council. So uh, I'm very interested in, in hearing their priority. But I guess the, the key priority for the council itself is facilitating a national approach to the management of fruit flies. And, and within that, there's the area of freedom from uh, exotic fruit flies. There's minimising any incidence and spread of the, uh, the, the ones we have here at the moment. And then, of course, having a national system to, uh, to support market access. So they're, look, they're, the, they're the major priorities. But at the council, uh, the main priority is, is facilitating that national approach to addressing those problems.
19: And of course, it is so localised to each region, you know, that does have fruit fly outbreaks. How do you feel about the Queensland fruit fly eradication efforts in South Australia's Riverland region? Yeah,
18: like I, uh, I'm not in a position to to evaluate what has been happening in the past. Yet Anita, having, uh, as I say, literally having not yet sat down for the first meeting of the council. But I'm I'm absolutely confident from my earlier life involved in this that every jurisdiction is is absolutely aware of the importance, but also uh, aware of, of the significant challenge in, in trying to achieve that. And I know I just I absolutely also know how important it is for the Riverland. I mean, yeah, particularly with citrus down there and the importance of exports, and and exports being underpinned by uh, the area freedom. So it's. It's of vital importance to uh, to the people in your area.
19: Yeah, so what, what sort of background do you have and what experience do you bring to the Fruit Fly Council? The, the council is full of experts on fruit fly,
18: so I, I don't suggest that I, I bring more expertise than they have. I have been involved all my life in, in agriculture. I was the managing director of Horticulture Australia, so uh, in that role... Working with all the horticulture industries to address the major issues, and of course fruit fly was one of those then, but that was back 2000 to 2008. So, um, and I've been involved in market access for many, many years across multiple commodities, and understand the uh, both the complexities but also the importance of industry and government working together to to make these things work. It, it, it requires this collaborative approach, and that's why I guess I'm so excited working for the, with the council because their role is to bring in, as I said before, to facilitate that national approach on what is a, a major challenge. Uh,
19: and in South Australia, as you touched on, you know, fruit fly being um, such a, a big problem in the Riverland currently. What will you do uh, as the council, or perhaps it's something, you know, you, you don't know yet, but what are your hopes um, in terms of assisting state government efforts, the South Australian government, in its eradication program? Yeah, I think the
18: the key again there, Anita, is that. It, it, it has to be a national approach. I mean, these flies just really have no respect for, for national jurisdiction or state borders. So it does require that national approach. And we'll have both the the, you know, the South Australian, the Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, all the, all the relevant people around the table. Uh, and everybody will be aware of the importance of uh, of maintaining that area of freedom for the Riverland. So it's, it's, it'll be, it's, I'm absolutely confident for that first meeting it's, it'll be a major priority to be, to be looked at.
19: Uh, you know, a national approach, um, does that work for, for different regions that do face different challenges, places like South Australia that have, you know, maintained that pest free status for such a long time until the the last couple of years? Yeah, no, no, look, it's
18: it's a national approach, meaning it's collaborative, but you're absolutely right that there'll be unique uh, opportunities and unique threats in each area. So now it doesn't suggest that everything is done exactly the same everywhere, but it, it does suggest that what happens in one area can have an impact on others, and and working collectively is is a much better way to uh, you know to address the problem. But it's not to suggest that it's a one you know one size fits all at all. It'll be very different in different areas.
19: Absolutely. Um, sterile insect technology is one that's uh, really been focused on in South Australia at the moment, and uh, we've recently seen the state government commit to a doubling of those sterile uh, insect that will be dropped from the skies and continue to be over the riverland. Is that something that you've found to be successful in the past or, or what sort of other eradication efforts, um, you know, that, that maybe aren't being deployed could be in, in South Australia?
18: Yeah, again, I'll, I'll, I'll bow to the experts of, that, uh, of the council when, when we come together, but I'm certainly aware of the, the SIT program and the importance of it. It's tried and true, but it, it's just one, if you like, one arrow in the quiver and uh, you have to not only try to uh, address things so on farm you've, uh, you know, you minimise the impact, but you've also got the effort then on how you manage the product while it's on board ship, etc., going to export markets. So there's a whole whole range of activities that have to be addressed, and as, as I say, a coordinated approach across all the jurisdictions if it's if it's going to be effective.
2: National Fruit Fly Council Chair John Webster speaking with Anita Ward. Finally, today we'll continue with our. Um, profiling of women who have been nominated for the Rural Women's Award. When a woman's love for fashion marries a, well, a woman with a love for fashion, I should say, marries a fifth generation merino sheep farmer, a luxury, luxury wool brand is born. Emily Riggs, founder of Australian fashion brand Iris and Wool, has been internationally recognised for her sustainable work with wool and now has been nominated for the Rural Women's Award. If successful, Emily wants to highlight the farming families behind wool, sharing their stories via a scanning code. The borough resident says how a life of tragedy and triumph has driven her passion to give back.
20: So when I was nine years old, I was actually diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer of the lymph nodes, and not many nine-year-olds would know what this meant. But mum was actually in the battle of her life with breast cancer. And a year into my treatment, mum passed away. She was only 43. Um, yeah and it was a really tough, yeah it was a really tough time, and I lost all my hair and um I was often called a boy, <laughs> and that really shattered my confidence and It was then that I turned to fashion and um it was a way for me to express my creativity and for people to look beyond my illness and looking back now, I think really, I remember it was such a thrill being complimented on what I was wearing, and I think looking back now, that was where the first seeds of iris and wool were planted, and um, yeah, getting complimented and uh, feeling good in what you're wearing, which is what I love about Iris and Wool, I get lots of feedback from customers saying, oh, they love their knitwear best piece in their wardrobe. And yeah, that's just a real thrill for me too.
7: A big part of your ethos is sustainability and raising that awareness around consumer consciousness and knowing where clothing comes from. How do you think people can be less removed Uh, are more connected to what they're buying?
20: I think really they need to, I suppose, research where they like the story behind the label and if they're using natural fibres, because obviously that is good for the planet and everything. And Merino wool is that. It's a perfect choice. It's a sustainable, renewable, biodegradable fibre and um, that's all we use. As I always say, it's the best fibre in the world.
7: (laughs) And obviously... You've had a natural connection to wool being married to a farmer that is in the industry. What other than that connection attracted you to working with wool? I think
20: just, yeah, the fact that it's a natural fibre, it's made from air, grass and water all off a sheep's back. It's really incredible uh, that it can be turned into a jumper. And it's just so beautiful to wear on your skin. Um, There's now research showing that it's good for eczema skin conditions. It's not scratchy or itchy, what a lot of people think and it's um, odour-resistant, thermoregulating. It's used in sportswear now. It's, um, yeah, a pretty incredible fibre.
7: Yeah, because I assume people think wool and connect it to warmth. But, you know, as I'm talking to you now, you're in a singlet (laughs) and it's a really hot day and that looks a beautiful and be really breathable. So you have the ability to blend a lot of the wool with other fabrics to achieve not only something that looks great but a really practical uh, item as well.
20: Yeah, absolutely and that uh, allows it to last longer too and you're able to wear wool throughout the whole year. It's not just for winter. As you said it's um, I've I've launched a summer collection for the first time last year and it's a, I've used a merino linen blend and Yeah, I'm wearing one of the singlets now and it's still 55% merino. So it's still mainly merino, but with that bit of linen, I think it sways the consumer to think, okay, maybe I can wear wool um, in summer.
7: Iris and wool has really expanded since it was founded in 2019. How has that evolution happened I think
20: probably a lot of luck. (laughs) Um, I was very fortunate to be featured by by From The Bush team in my first year of business, but also I think I've brought my um, customers along the journey like I share my story I share my everyday life with them and I think they they can resonate with that and I'm um, I, I suppose Iris Amore always way more than just a fashion brand. To date I've donated $8,000 to the McGrath Foundation in honour of mum and this year I'm starting to um, well I have donated a heap of little kiddies, beanies, to a um, charity in South Australia called Childhood Cancer Association. So each newly diagnosed cancer kid will receive an iris and wool beanie, which is pretty special, and I'll also donate a dollar from each sale to them as well.
7: And it's pretty special the fact that you've created a really successful business from regional South Australia. I think a lot of people would be surprised that your office is in a, a beautiful country home in borough when they're buying all these beautiful quality high-end fashion how do you make the business work from from here
20: uh i'm yeah it's probably not the most professional outfit but (laughs) we get it done but i have you know honestly i have a very supportive husband and his in-laws Help me with my kids, and we're lucky we've got um, care in at Borough. And I suppose I just get it done, and um, it's you've got to start somewhere, don't you? You can see lots of businesses starting up from their home now with the internet, and yeah, we're very lucky. I know, like, yeah, generation behind us would not have been, yeah, been able to do what i what I'm doing. So,
7: so with that said, what encouragement or inspiration would you like to pass on to others, perhaps looking at you and saying, "Oh, I would love to do that."
20: Just give it a go. Yeah, you always second guess yourself, but just give it a go. And if it fails, it doesn't matter. Just keep trying. And as my very wise grandmother used to tell me, if at first you don't succeed, then try, try again. And that's been a guiding phrase for Iris and Wool.
2: Emily Riggs, founder of Australian fashion brand Iris and Wool, speaking with Dimitri at Panagiotaris. And we'll have the last of the women who have been nominated for the South Australian Royal Women's Award on next week. So we'll profile everyone and we'll put them up online so you get a chance to uh, read a bit about their stories as well. But that's it from me today. We're joined by Sonia Feldhoff. Though. What's up? Hello, Cass. Yes, we're going to talk. Uh, inflation is the thing that's been thrown our way
11: as being what's causing us to pay more at the supermarkets, more for your airflow lights, more for your interest rates, right? But there's suggestions that maybe companies are lifting prices higher than they need to uh, in a sort of thing of greed. And as we see, companies earn billions of dollars in profits like Qantas. Um, Can you expect fares to be coming down now? Mm,
7: Apparently not to pre-COVID level.
2: Some some aren't. Well, keep listening because I know it's been a hot topic, particularly in supermarkets. But uh, more to come on your ABC local radio. It's coming up to one o'clock.
10: Stay
1: connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.